All right, I will explain myself. Thanks for the invitation. I didn't, I didn't get this in the first service, but let's just to set the record straight. Um, it was a few months ago. I was in downtown LA, actually Beverly Hills, at a hotel, and I was standing out waiting for a car, and somebody started singing to me um, a Marvin Gaye song about some kind of healing. I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, kids, ask your parents. Um, and um, and as, as he moved closer and kind of embraced me as he was singing it, and I, I didn't sing along. I could have, but I didn't. And um, and then I didn't know who it was, so I I thought maybe he's a hip hop artist. So I took a selfie, and um, and then it was over. And as I was going back in the hotel, um, I heard someone say, "Hey, Justin," and uh, I went back into the hotel and I told my wife I I was just with Justin Timberlake. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I didn't know the, the paparazzi were across the street, and they, uh, they TMZ'd it, and it was on the next morning. And so my 15 seconds of fame came and went. He reached out to me. I actually reached out to him later. He never reached back, so that's the end of the story, so thank you. Um, so that was the first hard thing to say this morning. The second hard thing is to talk about politics. And um, I, you copped out, Pastor Steve, mokes on him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So put, it, put me up here, because I'm gone after this service or the next one, and then... But um, yeah, I actually, I'm gonna, I, will t- I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, how we posture ourselves in this day and age um, than about politics itself. And I just think about like, like you are a missions church, John Stott, the late John Stott, great theologian said that the living God is a missionary God. And I believe you can carry that over that the thriving church is a missionary church. This is a church that reaches out locally and globally. And you want to do so in a way that you're going to have an influence, and how do we have an influence these days when it seems so tough? Um, the toxic culture seems to be getting uh, worse and not better. So grateful for you, Pastor Steve, himself is a, a demon, graduate of Talbot School of Theology, as his, his wife has a degree as well. And we've got a number of folks here, some Chris's, some Ben's, some Hannah's, and others. So there's a n- number of different, uh, and Robbie and others. So um, we're just grateful for the partnership that we have uh, with Living Hope Church at Biola University uh, and at Talbot School of Theology, our in-house seminary. So um, I actually, there's a student named Abraham that introduced me the other day. He was a, as a veteran, um, finishes stint in the armed services and then came to Biola and he also attends his church and it was great to see him um, uh, just the other, the other day. You know, the Biola has about 6,000 students, as many of you know, and 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 I, I asked myself the question, how do these students, these little Christs, as C.S. Lewis calls them, how do they live in this day and age when it seems like we have uh, sharper tongues than ever before, sharper edges, sharper elbows, and it seems like the, uh, the vitriol and the demonization seems to be getting worse and the gap in the middle seems to be getting wider and you're either on this extreme or that extreme and how do we navigate um, this polarization that is happening in a way that it's, 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 it's deeply comes from our own um, faithful allegiance um, to follow Jesus. And, and we're seeing it in, in not just in politics, we're seeing it in media. We're seeing kind of demonization in, 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 in universities. We're actually seeing it in the church. And how can we be the antidote um, to this divisiveness that seems so pervasive? So um, when your pastor, Steve, asked me to be part of this uh, series on real conversations, uh, politics in a divisive world, 
Um, as I said, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about our posture than our politics. And I've been thinking about this recently, even at, at Biola, and I've thought if I could, if I could like, condense um, my counsel on how we move forward in this crazy changing world we're in into a kind of a, a, a bumper sticker size slogan, uh, it would be these four words, firm center and soft edges. I know it sounds kind of trite, but at first center, I mean like, like, like that we are unequivocally committed to God's truth, that biblical convictions matter, even though they might seem out of vogue in some ways, that we're going to study God's word, know God's word, learn God's word, be guided by God's word, and understand God's word and God's world. It makes a difference that we have something that we stand for, something that is transcendent, something that is deep, something that is meaningful, something that is eternal, something that comes from the only living God. That's the, the firm center. So I encourage you like, to keep your firm centers firm. And the reason why you're part of a, of a community like Living Hope is because you take God's word seriously here. But by soft edges, I mean that we lead more and more with graciousness. We lead with this Christian understanding of, of, of love. We lead with winsomeness. We lead with neighborliness. We lead with listening, hospitality, and kindness. I've been thinking about this concept more and more. And I, I, I wrote a book on kindness, not the book on kindness. So I wrote a book. It's a limited edition book in that it's, they only printed so many and they stopped printing them. So um, there's not that many that are out there. I think Steve has the last few that have been um, printed that are still unsold. But um, it's, it's something that I, I have been thinking about as a president of, of Biola. And I, I think about this because it, kindness is, is, there's so many important stories of kindness that are, that are tucked away in God's word. Oftentimes they are just overlooked. Take David, right? The king. And when you think about David, you think about like royalty and you think about um, the harpist, the musician, um, the warrior, the slingshot slayer, right? The, the psalmist. Um, he is the most interesting man in the world. Um, our Bible's version of the Dos Equis man. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in here, but anyway. <laughs> Even when you look in at, at, at the, grand, the, the David in Florence, that, that epic sculpture, um, you think about all these attributes, but I want to tell you this morning, there's something powerful about David, and it's not his leadership, it's not his bravery, it's not the fact that he was a, um, like a, a, you know, a, a, a man of like, like noble um, renown. It's not his epic poetry, but this virtue of David that's so often overlooked is this, is this tender and, and unmerited kindness that he showed. You remember... Um, before he was king, he was pursued quite hotly um, by Saul. Saul was his enemy. Saul didn't like him. Saul was a bit passive aggressive. There were times that he would kind of publicly praise him, but then he would cast his spear at him and send armies to pursue David. So there was this, this passive aggressive paranoia and, and, and narcissism in this leader named Saul that was threatened by this young up-and-comer named David who was not from his family. Saul loved it when the folks sang that little ditty, Saul has slain his thousands. But then he raged with anger when he heard the next line, but David has tens of thousands. 
He was threatened by this young shepherd boy who was emerging as this political leader in Jerusalem. And so his, his, his jealousy, his, his thirst for power created this wall between David and him. And over time, Saul was killed. David's friend, who was Saul's son, Jonathan, was killed. And if there was anybody that should have been afraid, it was the lone survivor in Saul's family, this grandson of his named Mephibosheth. So when a new, a new dynasty comes into, into, into power from a different family, which is true from Saul to David, um, at a minimum, you ignore the other dynasty, but most likely you just completely wipe them out. And so there's only one person left uh, in this family. It was Jonathan's son. It was Saul's grandson. Both of them were dead, and this young man who was living was crippled in both feet, the story says. Listen to the tender story from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 through 11. And then one day David asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba, who was a servant of King Saul. Answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir. So David had him brought to him. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for this crippled young man and, and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You get the story, right? This is the grandson of the enemy. This is the new king. And if I can't imagine what Mephibosheth felt when they went to get him and he was being brought into the courts of David. But remember, David was a psalmist who wrote, how precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. So if he wrote it, he actually thought he's gonna do something about it. So he sends out for Mephibosheth 100 miles away they go and get him. I don't know what Mephibosheth is thinking, but as he's being brought, he thought, this might be the end of me. And so that they bring Mephibosheth into the king's court, this boy who had no father, orphan, whose grandfather was the enemy of David, right? Who was lame in both feet. And I don't know how he got in there. If he limped in or came in on crutches or was carried in, but there he stood before the king, crookedly present, and the king said, I want you to come and don't be afraid and eat at my table. And Mephibosheth's likely, his, his response was, 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 how would you notice this dead dog like me? So you know David, he had every right to open up his table. He can do that, kings can do that. To, to nobles, to family members, to wealthy people. But this 
very kind King David invites this, this disabled grandson of his enemy to eat at his table, not once, but every day, every year, adopted him into his family. So this is grace, when this, this feeble and fearful foe of, of David was invited to come and join him at his table. It's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. Somebody should make a movie out of it someday. I, I love this. But that's what, that's what kindness is, this is extension of grace that is given to someone who doesn't deserve it. So I have been thinking about this idea of kindness and how do we live kindly, right? And it's, it's easy to be kind when, like when there's harmony in our family. It's easy to be kind in our very familiar echo chambers when we all are thinking the same way and, and, and getting along. It's, it's easy to be kind to the barista, right? Once you get your latte right and you say thank you. There's lots of ways in which we can be kind and we're like that all the way. But it's a lot harder to be kind when, 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 when there's tensions in our families, in our neighborhoods, with our fellow students, with colleagues. It's harder to be kind when you're with people that you, you, you deeply disagree with. It's harder to be kind with those that you have judged and you've condemned and you've ostracized, you've alienated. And I don't use the word kind the same as nice. Nice is actually not a nice word. Um, it's so bland and spineless. It really means nothing. We need to stop telling our kids to be nice and start telling them to be kind and tell them the difference between the two. Because kindness is like, it's like, like a powerful, revolutionary, radical word that, 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 that can upend things, whereas niceness, I mean, you don't even find niceness in the Bible anywhere, or the word nice for that matter, but kindness is there. Old Testament, New Testament, loving kindness, kind-heartedness, over and over again because kindness is, is, this, is this virtue that's, that's rooted in scripture and it's been forged over the centuries by followers of Jesus and it's, it's grounded in, in, in great theological thinking but unfortunately, I think more and more kindness is this unappreciated virtue. Kindness is not, um, it's not something we do. It's the way we live. You don't just do kindness in some Nike-esque way, right? Just do it. No, it's not that way. I mean, if you look at what Micah says in chapter 6, verse 8, the very familiar passage, he has shown you, Micah says to God's followers, how to live. And you live this way. You do justly. You love kindness. It says love mercy, but it actually means love kindness. And you walk humbly with your God. And you think, wow, that's okay. That's a three-part formula. Do justly, love kindness, walk humbly. Of those three, it seems like, like loving kindness would be the easiest of the three. But it's not. Because we are confronted with those people that we have ignored and judged and condemned and have gotten on our last nerve. You know, being kind to those we like doesn't cost very much. It's easy to do. But the real test of your Christian faith is being kind to those who maybe you don't know or disagree with or don't like. And I, I like being kind. I mean, if you go to Biola, I mean, I, I try to be like friendly to everybody and a little fist pump down the sidewalk, a student I meet, you know, word of encouragement, how you doing? Somebody had a Facebook posting they showed recently um, where it says, today, DBC, president of Biola, 
put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes and asked me, how am I doing? He smelled like flowers though. <laughs> this dog's aroma made me feel like, dang, I'm a bee, okay. I'm struggling, but I can do it, just saying. 15 comments. Actually, I don't know what he's just saying. Like, smells like flowers, this dog's aroma, but anyway, that, don't, don't go there. Yeah. So we see the bumper sticker says, like, do random acts of kindness. And, and we do that, you know, you, you know, you take out your neighbor's trash early in the morning, you buy some random person in a restaurant, dessert for them, pay for it anonymously, you tell your friend she has food in her teeth. Whatever it is, your random act of kindness, um, we like to do that, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that in, in God's economy, kindness, is, is, it's not a random act. It is a radical life. It's countercultural way of living because God calls us to be kind, whether you're accepted or not. When I was a kid, I had this front row seat on kindness. It was from my father. My father was a small frame Canadian preacher, and he just like exuded it. It just came out of his Jesus love. He couldn't help himself. And for me, it was awkward. So like we would be getting gas in the car, and he'd get out of the car after the guy put gas in it, and, and he'd hug the Islamic gas station attendant and tell him how much he appreciated him. And I'd slink down in the back seat saying, why is he doing something like this? And we'd go to the the shoe store where he, uh, not the shoe, the, the cobbler who's fixing his shoes. And I remember this old Armenian cobbler, he reached across the aisle and said, can I hold your hands? And the guy said, okay, and he held his hands. And there are these gnarly shoe polished, you know, covered hands and my father's hands. My father said, I just want to pray for you. And so he stood there and prayed for him. I was at the front door praying also that no one would come in and see them praying <laughs> with each other because I didn't like it. It was like weird for me as a kid. And one time he, he had the audacity to go up to Reuben. Reuben was a Jewish, Jewish, Jewish furniture merchant uh, in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, where we lived. And he went up to Reuben and he just, I could see it coming. It was like, here he goes. And he goes and he grabs Reuben's face in his hand. And he says, Reuben, I love you. I'm going, oh, dad, why are you saying you love him to this guy you don't even really know that well? And I want to run out of the store. And, and so these are the moments that I saw when I was little. And, and I also saw times when my father's kindness was, was rejected. He would get the cold shoulder, the stiff arm, or a rude comment, whatever, whatever it was. And I often felt the rejection that he never seemed to feel for himself because he was just doing this because this is what he thought he was supposed to do. It was years later, I was, uh, lived in Bangladesh for a year. I was doing some research and working as, on a government project there. And my father came by and he was in India going to Singapore and he stopped for a few days. And this one particular morning, it was during the first Gulf War, we went for a walk in the streets and, and it was crowded, as you can imagine, Dhaka, that very congested capital with rickshaws and beggars and people Scourging through dumpsters and just these fetid streets and smells and sights and everything else. And, and I was trying to make sense of the world then. And my father said to me, he said, Barry, there's this verse in my head I just can't get out of my head. I said, well, what is it? He said, it's this passage in Matthew chapter 10. He said, it's right after Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you pick up your cross and you follow me. And I knew that verse. But he said, I'm talking about the next verse. I said, what's the next verse? He said, the next verse, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. My father said, I'm not really sure what Jesus meant in that verse, but this I do know. 
whoever God places in my path, I am gonna make myself receivable. For how will they receive the grace of God? How will they receive the love of Christ unless they receive me first? It was like my life flashed before my eyes on that walk with my father. I remember him hugging the Islamic gas station attendant and praying over the counter with the Armenian cobbler and holding Ruben's face in his hand and telling him he loved him. And I realized like, my father wasn't being weird. My father was being receivable. Then my father said these words to me. He said, you know, Jesus never said you were going to be received. He just said, make yourself receivable. Whoever receives you receives me, Jesus says. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. How incumbent upon us it is to make ourselves receivable. And I actually don't like to be that way. Because if I'm not received, when I make myself receivable, I get, you know, I get in a bad mood. It hurts my pride. I don't like to be rejected. I want to be thanked um, when I'm kind. But kindness is not about being appreciated. Kindness is about being obedient. Because some people will receive us and others won't. And actually, if you think of that Facebook posting that that student said about this dog's aroma smells like flowers, though he actually theologically wasn't that far off because Paul talks about you are the aroma of Christ. To some, you're the smell of life. To others, you're the smell of death. But you gotta keep on smelling like Jesus. This is what we do. Some will accept your Jesus fragrance. Some will reject your Jesus fragrance. But keep on giving that aroma out wherever you go. Kindness. It's on the short list of Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. And so when we inhale the Spirit as God's people, we cannot help but exhale. Kindness and goodness and patience. A few of you might remember a few years ago, there was a bill that was introduced in California in the legislation by members of the California LGBT caucus. Uh, it was a bill that basically aimed at Christian higher education in California because of their understanding of how we view sexual ethics, um, marriage, standards of conduct. And it was... Um, it caught us off guard. It was going to be um, punitive to our schools like ours if that bill indeed passed. And actually the bill did pass, but a lot of teeth were removed at the last minute. But we were told harsher and stronger bills were coming. And one of the architects of these bills, he wouldn't meet with any of us. He was an up-and-coming political star in California. And uh, when people tried to meet with him, he would um, basically not meet. So we had no conversation, no communication with him. I was going up to Sacramento when the bill was kind of in its heat of discussion on the assembly and the Senate floor, and I was going there to talk to some people I knew up there, just say, you know, please, you know, this bill has a lot of illogic to it, let's be rational, let's think about this before it's passed. And um, the day before I went up there, just randomly, I got this text message from someone I knew in Los Angeles, and he said, Barry, if you're ever up in Sacramento, there's a few people you need to meet, friends of mine. This is a Chinese-American businessman in LA. He said, there's one person. Then he said, the other person was Evan Lowe. I texted him back, I'll meet with the one, but I'm not gonna meet with Evan Lowe because Evan Lowe won't meet with us. He just refuses to do so. He texted me back. He said, you're meeting with Evan uh, tomorrow at 
And I was thinking, okay. Um, I wasn't really into it. Um, I didn't know what I was going to expect, but at the end of the day, my last meeting with sweaty palms, I went into Evan Lowe's office. And he was cordial, greeted me. I sat down with him. His two um, legislative aides were there too. They kind of looked like Russian judges, like really somber. And he, uh, but he, was, he listened to me, and we talked. He had a conversation, went about a half an hour. And when I was done, I just felt like I'm going to ask him this. It's a long shot, but I said, Evan, would you ever come to Biola? And he paused, looked at his legislative aides, and he said, okay, I'll come. A few months later, he shows up. I gave him access to some students, some faculty, some staff in student development. He spends four hours with them without me, um, comes back. He and I have a four-hour dinner together that night, which led us to more dinners and more conversations. And over the last few years, we have been together many times. Some time ago, we even wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post titled, We First Battled Over LGBT and Religious Rights, Here's How We Became Friends. And in that op-ed, we said our nation needs to rediscover the inherent strength of its pluralistic diversity, where the dignity and perspectives of everyone matter. And we, we don't have to agree in order to affirm that we're all in this together. A strong and vibrant democracy allows for diverse visions of human flourishing, but it need not be a zero-sum game. Rather, what if? We listen to each other more in order to focus on where our visions overlap toward a better state, a better nation. The two of us can attest to the fact that relationships don't need to be built on 100% agreement in order to be fruitful, but they do need to be built on listening, kindness, and respect. Evan Lowell and I still have some pretty deep differences, but I've heard from him ways in which Biola can be a better place. We found common ground on other issues outside of human sexuality where we do agree. I've learned through conversations with him that you don't have to see eye to eye to work shoulder to shoulder. I've learned through this process that the best thing that we can do with those with whom we disagree is listen to each other. Listening while wanting to learn rather than listening while waiting to respond. And there's a difference between the two. It's been three years now, no new legislation has come out of Sacramento. I don't know what the future will hold. As I told the group earlier today, I'm not a prophet, not the son of a prophet. I work in a nonprofit organization. <laughs> but, but we live this way as God's people in this divisive culture because we have firm centers and because we lead with soft edges. And we need to continue this way, leading in love and that firm center, soft edges idea, that's, that's not mine, that's, that's the gospel, right? Jesus came full of truth, firm center, and full of grace, soft edges, not one of each or half of each. Jesus says, be wise as serpents, firm center, be gentle as doves, soft edges. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, firm center, but you love your neighbor, as yourself, soft edges. Peter writes, always be prepared to have a defense for the hope that you have, firm center, but do so with gentleness and respect, soft edges. Remember when Jesus in Matthew chapter five, he, he was talking about the, the, the law and he said, you have heard that it's said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you 
And he uses those two verbs, pray and love. And sometimes we pray without loving. In other words, we you know, want God to change someone's life, but we don't have proximity. We don't form a relationship with them. And that kind of loveless prayer doesn't go very far. And sometimes we love without praying. We want relationships, but we don't long to see God's gospel change someone's life. You don't get to pick which verb. You pray, firm center, and you love, soft edges. And this is the life God has called us to as his people. And, And there's never been a time, more than today, when this has been such an essential alchemy for us to live by. My hope is that Christians are first seen as gracious in their spirits while solid in their convictions, known more for what we are for than what we are against. My hope is for people of faith to be known to love our enemies and pray for those who make life difficult for us and love demands proximity. My hope is that you reach out to those who think differently than you and step outside your echo chambers and form relationships with those with whom you disagree. My hope is that you'll open your lives and even your tables to some very unlikely dinner guests. For the greatest influence for us as God's people lies ahead as we walk the way of cross-shaped, Christ-shaped kindness with this horizontal, horizontal bar to the soft edges and the vertical bar of that cross, which is the firm center. In Living Hope Church, you're doing this. I mean, I know from knowing some of your staff here, some of your students and graduates, that you are dispensing mercy in the community and around the world. Don't let up. But this is your challenge. To live biblically in ways that spills out with grace and kindness. Brian Loritz is a friend of mine. He wrote this. We've tried legalism and that has proven inept and unattractive. Some are trying a warped form of love that renders us saltless. The only thing, the only thing that works is a life that embodies grace and truth lived out in relationships with others. Church, I believe that wherever you are and wherever you go, you need to be known more and more, especially today, by lives of radical kindness. And your kindness may be accepted. Your kindness may be rejected. But I can tell you this, your kindness will never be forgotten. Because it plants this God seed in someone's life that I believe one day will germinate, maybe long after you're off the scene. Live radically kind. Remember, we're kind not in order to be thanked. We're kind in order to be obedient. Romans chapter two, Paul starts off by just kind of getting on to God's people for their tendency to judge others. And then in verse four, he says these words. God's kindness leads to repentance. It's not your judging or your ranting or your vitriol or your disembodied tweet that leads someone to repentance. It's God's kindness through you. And we don't lead our enemies to Christ, we lead our friends. So we need to be all about making our enemies our friends first. This is how, in response to real conversations at Living Hope Church, we're called 
to live. We cannot love well with a bullhorn in our hands. Sometimes breaking bread begins to break down barriers. Remember, we form relationships not by shouting across the street, but by talking across the table. And this is the posture that God has called us to, especially in this day and age. Kindness, it is powerful, it is revolutionary, it can break down seemingly impenetrable walls. It is at the heart of racial reconciliation. It can restore relationships long thought unsalvageable. It can empower leaders to break stalemates. It can bring neighborhoods together. It can bring nations together. And it can point people towards Jesus. And that's why you must radically live this way, not in order to be appreciated, but in order to be obedient, not as a random act, but as a radical life. And this is nothing new. For generations, Christians have lived kindly, feeding the poor, restoring the sick, educating the illiterate, subverting racism, sheltering the homeless, caring for the marginalized. Don't sell kindness short. The old Boston pastor from the 19th century, A.J. Gordon, said this, our task is not to bring all the world to Christ. Our task is to bring Christ to all the world. Christ calls us into our neighborhoods, into our cities, into our communities. He calls us off our soapboxes and into the world. And we do this not because it's a cool thing to do. We do this because we have been redeemed. Because the most powerful act of kindness in human history was the cross. Not this bloody, rugged, dark moment, but when Christ did for us which we, what something that we could not do for ourselves. And we received unmerited grace. And so because we received it, we go out and live it. So let me wrap it up with the way I started, and that is Mephibosheth, the crippled boy, walks into the king's court. And I think this is all of our stories. We are the Mephibosheths. We are broken. We have the baggage. We are twisted and sinful. And we walk into the king's court, and why would you notice a dead dog like me? And instead, we hear the king say, despite your past and your baggage and your shortcomings, I want you to come and eat at my table every day. This God, as David wrote, who prepares for us a table in the presence of our enemies, welcomes us to his table as his daughters and as his sons. There's a place for you at the table of God, a place that you don't deserve, but the banquet of grace is spread for you. So spread that banquet of grace for others wherever you might be. Therefore, as God's chosen people, redeemed by his grace, God's word exhorts us, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with kindness. Amen. James? Thank you, Dr. Corey. I really appreciated that so much because we had the opportunity to speak this morning at the very first service, and I, I've been thinking a lot about in the past couple of hours the phrase firm center and soft edges. And I think that as I've 
keep resonating with that phrase. I think that that's kind of my hope of what I am trying to achieve, even in my own life. Um, for those of you, obviously, Pastor Steve has asked us to speak on the issue of politics. And when he called me, I was like, what in the world? Why does he want me to speak on this issue itself? Because it is an issue that a lot of us try to avoid in every way. For those of you who do not know me, I am the senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and we have two sites, uh, one in LA and Torrance. And so I've been pastoring that church for the past 18 years, as we planted it um, many years ago, um, to be a salt and a light in our community. But recently, a new change has happened in my life. Um, I was recently elected uh, to serve as a board of trustee on the Torrance, in the Torrance Unified School District as a school board member itself. And I know for some of you that you're probably thinking, that's kind of weird. How can a pastor be able to be a politician or to even run for public office? Maybe that's what Pastor Steve was thinking as well when he said, what was he thinking? That's why perhaps he invited me to hear so that he could hear what I was thinking at that moment. But I wasn't really thinking, to be honest with you, when I decided to do this. It was one of those things that really was a God moment um, in every way. And the reason why I say it was a God moment was because of the fact that when I ran, I had no campaign manager, I had not have a lot of funds, I just simply did it because of the fact that some school board members consider, asked me to consider running, and I went in completely blind. I had no idea what a school member, what a school board was, I didn't even know it existed, I didn't even know what they did, I didn't even know how, why would they even consider me to be qualified to even be in this position, to even run for this election. But as a result of it, I really thought about how can I serve my love, my community better. And I felt like, God, if you really wanted me to do this, then God, you're the one that's going to have to make it happen. And lo and behold, on November 6th, by God's amazing and humorous grace, I actually got elected on that day to be a school board member. It was literally shocking and absolutely a miracle. I thought for sure I was going to lose in every way. But the reason why this all came about was because of the fact that understand that this issue of politics and faith is a very divisive issue, uh, more than ever before. As a matter of fact, when I look back in my journey about three years ago, uh, one of our church members left because of the fact they found out who I was voting for, who I voted for in the election. I'm sure a lot of you are probably wondering who, but I'm not going to tell you who I voted for because of the fact that they left my church as a result of it. And I'm not joking. That's how bad it was. And I think what hurt me the most was this. That so often our political affiliations have become more important than our affiliations as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we have trumped that over the fact that we are brothers and sisters. Why do you hate me so much when Christ's blood is the one who was shed so that we could be united together in that way? And it's absolutely stunning, especially when I look at my Facebook posts where I have people on the very left and I have people on the very right. And these people are absolutely nuts. And the scary part is that they're my friends, you know? And I was like, I don't even know who you are anymore, right? Because they just seriously throw up all over Facebook about what their views are, and I'm thinking to myself, how do we get to this point where we're so divisive, you know? And we go to church together. And it's absolutely scary indeed. And I realized it's so easy for us to remain out of the arena of politics. But seeing all that divide, I realized in Palm Poor, maybe perhaps that's the reason why God has put me in this position, so that I begin to reshape that narrative of what it means for us to be as Christians involved in the network of politics itself. And I know that I'm a rookie. I know I'm still learning the ropes itself. And I just wanted to share with you the things I have learned along this way so that perhaps it would be encouraging to you as well. You see, the reason why this is important to me is that as a church, as a pastor, we planted our second site in Torrance nine years ago. And the reason why we decided to do this was because of the fact that we wanted to be missional where we lived. That's what I wanted my people to be. 
that when you live in your city, to get involved in your city, to love your city, to love your neighbor, to love the people in your community, to get involved somehow, some way. Our church is in LA, right across from the Grove in LA. That's where our LA site is. And people come up all over the place, from Thousand Oaks, from Brea, to you name it, to Santa Clarita, to Torrance. They're all over the place. But we make no impact in the city of LA. We just come and we use and abuse the city of LA because that's a central point. And we all go back to our homes. And I was thinking to myself, how in the world are you going to be a witness to your friends if you can't tell them about the gospel and invite them to church when church is 40 minutes away? That makes no sense. So we intentionally started our second site. And that's why being there in Torrance, I have become involved. My wife and I have been very involved in our schools. You know, we're that PTA mom, dad. We volunteer for everything. I'm part of every fundraiser imaginable. I was on school site council. I actually formed a nonprofit alliance for, so that we can raise funds for our kids' school. You name it, I did it for our school because I wanted to love my community. It gave me the opportunity to meet people outside the church, and many of them who do not know Christ, so that I would begin to engage in building up relationships, so hopefully that I would have the opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. That was my vision, that was my heart. And I've been doing that for the past eight years through my kids' elementary schools. And that's why as a result of that practice, as a result of that um, work and that school, these board members who have known me because of that work, perhaps thought that, you know what, this man loves kids, he loves our schools, maybe he'll be willing to serve in this capacity. Because one thing about civic office, when you think about your city councilman, when you think about your school board reps, these people do it because they want to serve the community. They love the community. It's not because of the pay. I'll tell you right now, it's not because of the pay. You get paid jack, nothing, right, basically. You know, basically you pay more than you actually get paid um, at the end of the day. But we do it because of the fact that we love our city. We love our community. And I felt like it would give me the opportunity to be that witness. At the same time, there was much fear when I decided to go into this. And the reason why is because there was so much at stake for my family. The reason why I say there was so much at stake for my family is because my wife works in the school district. My wife was a teacher at the school district, and now she just got promoted to be the assistant principal at a middle school in Torrance. And so therefore, now her future, perhaps, could be affected by my decisions. Why? Maybe perhaps people want to have retribution against my wife as a result, out of anger toward me or whatever it may be. Not only that, my children. My children are students in the Torrance Unified School District. As a matter of fact, one of my school board members said, James, before you do this, understand that your kids will get ridiculed. Your kids will, may have inappropriate remarks by teachers. I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, you know, some of the teachers might tell your kids, tell your dad to give me a raise, right? Tell your dad to give me a No joke. These are the things that these teachers will say to your, to your children. And I was absolutely stunned by some of the comments that these teachers would make because of the fact that they know that we are the ones who decide whether or not they get raises, whether or not whatever happens in the school calendar, whatever it may be. And there was a lot at stake for the sake of my family as well as for me. But the struggle was really about how can I really love my neighbor better? So when it came down for the campaign, when it came for the election, on your ballot, you, have, you could put two words under a description of who you are. Just two words, right? And so obviously I was running for school board. And by the way, school board is the least loved political office, right? You get most abused. It's the very last thing on the ballot, right? You got governor, lieutenant, you got all these things. The very last thing is your school board guy, right? And that's where I was. And under the words, you can put two words. And I was thinking, what do I put? And usually you put your profession. And so I'm a pastor. So I, just, I wanted to put the word pastor underneath my name. But there were many who argued, told me that don't put pastor. Do not put that word down. If you put the word pastor down, then you will not get elected. 
And the reason why the word pastor comes with a lot of baggage, right? And the reason why for so many people, they want to keep separation of the church and state. They don't want us to push our, politi- our religious agenda, quote unquote, into our school systems. They were worried that I was going to try to bring God into our schools, prayer back into our schools, to make our institutions more of a religious institution rather than a public institution. And I think that's one of the dangers I was also afraid of, because being a pastor, I sincerely believe that it's not the role of the church itself as an institution to get engaged in politics. And the reason why is because there is no political position that's going to properly reflect what the church holds on to. Right? This is why Tim Keller always talks about that the Christian is not democratic or republican. Why? Because there are values on both sides that the church agrees with. And that's why so often we try to affiliate a church with a political party or whatever it may be. It will do more damage to the witness of the church because of the fact that it cannot properly reflect it. And we see that today. We see that because of the alignment that we're in, the church has become so affected by it because of the fact that they've taken position on certain issues publicly. And that's why I think there's a danger to that as well. At the same time, I'm not naive, not realizing that because I'm a pastor, I represent that institution. By putting down a pastor, I know that I represent that institution. But I felt like that, you know what, maybe somehow in my local little community that I could redefine that narrative by the way that I live my life. And so they said, do not put that down. Put community leader instead. That's a lot more tame. That shows that you care about the community. At the same time, I had my Christian brothers and sisters who also encouraged me not to run. Why? Because they also were concerned that it would hurt the witness of the church. Because I cannot please everyone. I'm going to offend someone. I'm going to displease people because I will not vote in a way that will make them happy. And so therefore, they felt like it was a lose-lose proposition. You're not going to be able to make everyone happy and therefore, you will hurt the witness of the church. But even though these, true, these things were true, and that were obviously worrisome. I knew who I was, that I was a Christian, and that I was a pastor. And therefore, I put the word pastor, parent, on the ballot. If this is what God wanted, then he will be the one to make it happen. And by God's amazing grace, again, that I became elected to this position. But the reason why I put pastor and parent was because, again, I wanted to change that narrative. I was hoping that by putting pastor, it would hold me to account- accountable to remember, remind myself that who I am, that I first represent God in all that I do, and also I love my neighbor as myself. As our brother kept on saying, firm center and soft edges. It, this is what's actually a kind of description of what my heart was, to love my neighbor well. How can I love my neighbor well was perhaps by being a voice in our school system, by trying to protect our children from all the cultural issues so that they can learn and grow in every way. And by doing so, perhaps I'm loving my neighbor as a result of loving their children in that way. I knew that being a pastor would be a barrier to being elected, but I knew that it would give me a unique opportunity to be a witness to my community and to love my neighbors. And I'm grateful for this opportunity because now being elected has given me the opportunity to engage and to, make, and to engage in cultural issues, to engage with people who don't think like me, to have dialogue with people who have diverse opinions. And because I've been in a unique situation, I've been a lot more sympathetic of all our leaders in our political system. Because there are so many things they have to consider. It's not an easy issue. And I'm grateful. Though they are imperfect, I've come to respect and to listen, as our brother has said today. 
And I hope that they have also have done the same with me as I try to live out what it means to be a salt and light in this community by being this way. Now understand, being on the board, I really have no power, right? Yeah, we talk about teacher's contract, we do all that kind of stuff, we do a lot of discipline issues, whatever. But what I do have is a voice to speak into issues with my convictions and to give my colleagues a different perspective on the things that I hold on to, the things that I believe. For example, recently we had to vote on the issue of whether or not we should adopt our new uh, social science textbooks. The reason why that was a big issue was because of the fact that these these social science textbooks had now the LBGT community influence on it. And the reason why now you celebrate people in the past and history, people that were not straight. And they will include these stories in the textbook. Why have to include some people who are like that, the kids that are like that. And therefore, I was confronted with this issue. Do I approve this book? Do I say yes? And do I say that, you know what, we should adopt this as our textbook, knowing my own convictions on the issue of this? It was a hard issue for me, but I knew that ultimately that I will have to give an account for all that I do before God one day. And therefore, obviously, I had to make a dissenting vote on that issue. And I knew I was going to lose, right? Because I knew it was going to be four to one. But at the same time, I knew that I could not compromise my own position. But at the same time, is I, even though I was willing to speak for that truth, I didn't want to hurt the relationships that I had with my fellow board members. That I wanted to do it in a winsome and gracious way so that other brother mentioned that I could be received and understood. Though I may not agree that we can have that mutual respect with one another, but at the same time, standing on my position, saying that this is what I believe to be true. And that's why I was able to dissent. Not only on that issue itself, but AB 329. Maybe some of you have heard about AB 329. It has to deal with sex education in our public education schools today. And therefore, it's kind of funny because this issue has become even more important for me because of the fact that churches have been calling me left and right about this issue. As a matter of fact, I'm giving seminars on this issue itself. As a matter of fact, one day one of the school superintendent, one of the people at our school district said, how come there are a lot of Korean kids missing at school today? We have over 24,000 people, but a lot of Koreans were missing. And you know why? Because somehow on the Korean Christian radio, they said, there's an issue there, we should have a protest. So don't send your kids to school. So a bunch of Korean kids to go to school on that day, and therefore that's why people noticed at our t- district. And I was thinking, ask myself, is that the best way that we can engage our system? And because of the fact that I've been willing to have dialogue and talking with our, our, our leaders and talking about the people on our staff, talking with our cabinet, has given me greater insight, perhaps, of the way that the church can become more effective in dealing with this issue rather than staging a one-day boycott in the schools. You see, this is why it allows me to be a bridge, a bridge to go back to our churches so that we understand what the issue is so that we can speak better and more winsomely and wiser into the way that we are going to conduct ourselves when it comes to these serious matters of issues. And I know that it is not easy, and I know that it's, not, it's challenging. And there are moments where our, our, our discussions have become very vocal, almost to the point where there are shouting matches. But at the end of the day, though, we have to learn to respect and show kindness to one another, encouraging, knowing that we're all on the same path of trying to do what's best for the children. Though we may not disagree what that path looks like, that we try to forge a, a, a consensus of perhaps the best way without not a, without having feeling that we cannot present our own views. Now, one of the things I learned being a politician here as well is that so often it is so easy and tempting for us to compromise our decision because of the fact that we want to please people, right? We all want to be likable. As a matter of fact, a lot of us try to do things so that we can get reelected again, right? And whether I, not, whether I get reelected or not, I have no clue. Whether I run again, I have no clue. But we do make those decisions because of the fact that we want to be supported, we want to be loved. 
But the reason why I think that we can be more effective as Christians, especially in the political realm, is because of the fact that we're not driven by our identity by the things in this world, but our identity is found in Christ. C.S. Lewis once said this, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. In other words, he's saying that people who thought of eternity, the people who thought of heaven above, are the ones who made the greatest impact in this world today. And the reason why is because you have the courage to speak the truth. Why? Because you know that the Lord is the one who is sovereign. That you are able to speak the truth, even though everyone will hate you for that truth, that you know that you are loved and received by God Almighty, and when you know that you are so loved, then you are able to speak the truth in that way. In the same way, when you realize that God is the one who received you and loved you the way that you are, that you can be gracious and loving to those who are around you as well. Tim Keller says that love without truth is sentiment- sentimentality, right? It's nice, but not really useful or helpful, love without truth. Truth without love is harsh, right? That nobody wants to hear it. But truth with love is everything. And what does that look like? That you're able to speak the truth, radical truth, and yet to be committed to that person radically as well. And that's what we try to do. That's why when we have this eternal perspective, we're able to conduct ourselves in that matter. And that's what keeps me grounded, I think. So often when we look in scripture, we see people, leaders in their governments, whether it be Daniel, whether it be Joseph, or whatever it may be, but they were always grounded because of the fact that they have that heavenly perspective. That they're not driven by the standards or the gender or identity of the world, but they were driven by their identity in Christ, in God that they were able to go against what the cultural norm was said to prove otherwise. And this is where I think that as, as Christians, if we can keep that center strong, then we can be engaged in politics that makes a difference in all that we do. And that's why, dear friend, not all of you will run for political office, but what I encourage you to do is to get engaged, to be that voice, to speak, to stand up. So often I feel like those who are so political have done nothing to make a difference. The people that have spoke against me, that person who left, I've always asked that person, have you ever engaged in public, public service? Have you ever engaged in making a difference? It's so easy to rant and rave, but what are we gonna do to make a difference? And one of the ways you can make a difference is to pray for your leaders. I, become, I, I always ask people to pray more and more for our government leaders. Pray for their wisdom, pray that God will guide them, pray, pray that God will give them wisdom, grace to, to guide our nation, to guide our people. But it comes down to this, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I thank God for this privilege of what it means for me to love my neighbor through this whole political system. Let me pray.